Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, I'm Nick Johannesson, your host, and my guest today is Richard Tyler. Richard, would you like to uh, introduce yourself? Hi, uh, I'm Richard Tyler, and I'm one of the founding brothers behind the British men's fashion accessories brand, Tyler & Tyler. Now, before we get into the brand itself and what you do, exactly what are men's accessories? It's quite a wide array. Um, for us, our main accessories are the ones that we manufacture in-house, um, which are the metal items, so that's cufflinks, tie slides, lapel pins, lapel chains, blazer buttons. Those are what we, we refer to really as our hard accessories. And then we do softer accessories, which are socks, belts, wallets, pocket squares, accessories like that. So it's quite a wide array when we say men's accessories as different products for sure. Do they have a sort of place in these modern times? Are the young uns still into accessories? I think so. I mean, we... Certainly for cufflinks has always been, you know, that's one of our mainstay products. But as far as trends go, it's very up and down. You know, you'll just need a celebrity to wear a single cuff shirt on a television programme and that will change it. So everybody will stop wearing cufflinks for that, that period. But it comes and goes, certainly for formal occasions like weddings and things like that. Um, obviously, the cufflinks always there. And, and, and certainly for sort of if you're wearing a tuxedo to an evening event, you know, cufflinks are still very popular. But it's a weird one at the moment. I think with, I'm sure you've seen it yourself, but with menswear now, I, I don't think the suit is dead, but certainly people are more doing separates now. So they're not wearing a whole sort of three or two piece suit. They're kind of mixing it up a bit more now. So you might have a pair of trousers from one suit, a different jacket. So, but there's still the need for cufflinks there, definitely. Um, and I think guys like to add if you want to add a bit of your own personality to a, to your look, I think accessories are quite a, a nice way of doing it, whether that be with a, you know, if you've got a, a grey jacket on, a nice bright coloured pocket square. So I think it's quite a bright coloured socks add a pop of colour. You know, our belts, we've got quite a wide range of colours on our on our woven belts as well. And again, that adds colour and a bit of personality to, to a look. So I think accessories are always a good way a guy can add a sort of touch of his own personal you know, sort of input and style into a look, really. And I guess a lot of them do also have uh, very traditional connections or sources. Yes, yeah. Do you, sorry, what do you mean by that? Sorry. Uh, that uh, I mean, most of the men's accessories aren't sort of things that were invented last year. Oh, they God, were, no, uh, no, this is it. I mean, <laughs> from ages ago. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, this is, this is, this is it with us. We, as, as a company, we've been manufacturing in Birmingham since 1908 and all the techniques and the processes and the fittings that we use are still the same as today. So, yeah, the, the, these things that I mean, like, the, you know, the typing and things like that, I mean, that's been around for a long, long time, as as is the cuffling. Do you see much innovation at all? Um, I, I, it's not, not really. I think it's more an eye... I mean, I'm very much of the view that everything's a copy of a copy of a copy. I don't think there's ever an original, totally original idea when it comes to anything, really, in design. So I think for us, we always try and put a different spin on something if we can do something a bit differently. Um, I mean, for example, we've got we've got a range of cufflinks called Capsule Icons, um, and I wanted to sort of do high-tech 
high-tech cufflink. Um, so we actually, it's a turnpark cufflink, so it starts off as a solid tube of metal. And we actually produce them in aircraft-grade aluminium, which is incredibly light material. And then instead of doing coloured enamel, I wanted the cufflink to be just one colour. So we, we do a technique which is called anodizing, which is where you, you basically dye, you put a surface uh, on the metal and then you can dye the metal. So these cufflinks, we do one that's sort of a light blue colour, one that's red, one that's orange. Um, and it's actually anodizing is a, it's a protective coating that they use on Formula One engine parts, for example. So it's, so it's actually a really sort of durable hardwearing cufflink and, and yet it's really light and feather lights aware because of the fact that it's aircraft grade aluminium. So it's still based on a traditional cufflink shape, but I think it, it's kind of our different spin on trying to do something a bit more high tech, shall we say, and a bit more sort of different spin on a traditional die struck hand enamel cufflink. It sounds like something James Bond would wear. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I'm really pleased to see, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if you've seen it, but the trailer's come out for the new Bond film um, yesterday, and I think they released another one today. And in quite a few of the pictures, he's wearing a tie clip, which is uh, a nice thing for me to see. Uh, so hopefully we'll see a trend in tie clips coming back again. <laughs> the question the trend forecasters are asking, though, is, is he wearing a suit? Because if he is, they might have been wrong about the death of the suit. Yeah, this is it. I mean, in the shots I've seen, he has got two-piece suits on, so perhaps he's going to change again. <laughs> Probably nice and tight as he always wears them. Absolutely. <laughs> so you mentioned that you'd been uh, in business since 1908. Yes, so the, the the original business started in 1908. We're actually a, a group of companies. So the business that started in 1908 is called REV GOM Limited, and they were traditionally badge manufacturers based in the in the famous jewellery quarter in Birmingham. And then um, the other company, which is the parent company, Shawmonts Limited, which was owned by two German guys uh, that moved to Birmingham. Um, again, Badge manufacturers doing very similar to REV Gom, um, and they they sort of started in the very early sixties, um, and it, and all the companies have just merged into one group basically. Um, my father bought the business in nineteen eighty nine. Uh, prior to that, he was managing director of Firmins and Sons in Birmingham, um, which is Birmingham's oldest company. So they. Again, our badge manufacturers, they're very heavily involved in the Ministry of Defence, so they make all of the horse guard, all the household cavalry helmets, so the, the helmets that you see with the big horse hair plumes on and the breastplates and, and all the badges and regalia that they wear, they, they, they manufacture that. So my dad had always wanted his own business, so um, it was when he saw there was an opportunity to buy Shawmonster. He, he took that up and then as the company grew, we then, we then bought REV GOM Limited as well. Um, so yeah, the, the heritage of the company dates back to 1908. Um, all the machinery that we've got, we've still got machinery that dates back to 1908 and some of our archives as well um, date back as far as that. So we've still got badge and cufflink dies that date back to that period, which is, you know, it's a fantastic archive for me, it's, you know, and I'm, when we're designing new collections to be able to go back to that archive and, and you know it has great influence on us um and they're very nice classic designs as well which are sort of timeless which is which is a good thing 
I'm sure many listeners are now sitting here thinking, will plumed helmets make a comeback in menswear? <laughs> you never know. <laughs> <laughs> it's strange because you see them and you never stop to think that someone makes those. Yeah, I mean, it's wow. incredible. I mean, I, I remember when I've been a you know, small boy being taken to the factory and being able to sort of wear these helmets and uh, they weigh an absolute ton and it was yeah, it was incredible. And they also work with they did they produced swords as well and things. So for a for a small boy, this was quite a fascinating place to visit. So but yeah, sort of so my dad's always been involved in sort of in the crudest sense, metal bashing. Um and then yeah, we bought the business and then I sort of grew up with it. Um I mean all the processes that we do internally, both myself and my brother can do. So you know, we've, we've both sort of grown up working in the factory, so we've got a real understanding of all the skills involved in, in doing what we do. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. And then I joined the family business in 2001. Um, prior to that, um, my background's actually marketing. So I did a BA Honours Business Studies degree um, and specialised in marketing. And... Um, was really fortunate enough to land uh, a job with Hilton Hotels Marketing Agency. And um, I climbed up the ladder there and I was responsible for all their food and beverage marketing. So all of their restaurant marketing I was responsible for. Um, so I got to work at a very young age with brands like Coca-Cola, Guinness, Corona beer. Um, so it's a great sort of grounding for me really. Um, I'd always had the intention to come into the family business, um, but I wanted to sort of have, you know, I didn't want to just have that handed to me on a plate. I wanted to go off and sort of do my own thing and have my own career before I came in first. So, uh, but yeah, dad, dad just phoned me up one day um, and I was very happy where I was. Um, and he'd had a marketing manager and he sort of said, look, it's, it's not really working out. And um, I think there's a great opportunity and, there's a position there for you now. It's probably earlier than you want to come in, but if you want to come into the business, it, it, now is a good time to do it. So, so um, yeah, I up sticks from Hertfordshire and, uh, and moved back to sunny Birmingham and, and joined the business in 2001. What sort of role did you take on then? So I was I was I started as the sales and marketing manager to start with, um, and then um, my brother joined a few years later. Again. My brother doesn't come from a traditional uh, design background either. He, uh, by coincidence, we went to the same university. Um, <laughs> he looks at lots of other universities, but he, he particularly enjoyed it when he came to visit me. So we both ended up at the same university. So there's 18 months between us, so a couple of years in in, in, in sort of university terms. Um, so, yeah, he, he worked in uh, for a private medical care company doing their marketing as well. And then he joined a couple of years later. Um but when I first joined the company, um, we were designing and manufacturing um, mainly cufflinks, but other accessories, but mainly cufflinks for some really well-known British fashion designers. Um, and these designers would literally just come to us. They'd give us the colours that they wanted to do for that season, but all the design work was actually left to us. And I was also managed the design side of the business as well. So... I've always been a frustrated creative. Um, I remember the managing director of the campaign works, which was the the marketing agency I worked for. He, said, I remember him saying to me, "You're you're just a frustrated creative." So I've always had that sort of desire to be creative in me. Um, so yeah, we were we were working on with these 
designers that we were working with, they were literally saying, colours for the season, then we'd do all the design work. So we'd, we'd come up with sort of, could be 30, 40 different cufflink designs. And then the brand house would just cherry pick a couple. Um, so we knew we had a skill there, really, because we were all they were doing was sort of telling us the colours, really. But the, the design work was actually by us. And then it was a huge part of the business. They were, you know, big brands. So they were great for us and it was good turnover. And But um, it, fortunately, sort of Chinese manufacturing started to sort of get noticed in the UK at this point. Um, and they were all, you know, it wasn't just one design, there was a few, and they were all sort of good with us in a way that they wanted to see it was going to happen, but they just sort of said, look, we've really enjoyed working with you, but we, it's cheaper for us to get everything made in the Far East now. Um, and they they were trying to batter us down on price a lot as well, which was very difficult to do as, as British manufacturers at the time. So that really became the sort of catalyst for us starting Tyler and Tyler, really. Um, but that was before my brother had joined the business. So I originally tried to do a men's accessories brand myself. Um, and I probably didn't research it enough in hindsight now when I look back. And um, the designs that I did were based on sort of geometric shapes. Um so I stupidly called the range geometric, which at the time I thought was really cool. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> obviously when you call something geometric, you're really limiting yourself on what you can do because everybody's going to be, expect every single design you do to be a geometric shape. Um, so, yeah, I kind of shot myself in the foot with that one. Um, I didn't get the packaging right. Uh, the branding just didn't really work. Um we got it in a couple of department stores, um, but again, we had at the time we 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 had a production manager that wasn't you know particularly amazing, so he wasn't sort of pulling pulling the stock through for me quickly enough to to fulfil the demands of the department store. So that was again a hard lesson. So I think it when my brother joined the business, it, it was kind of. I'd learned some hard lessons from trying to do my own brand, and but I still had a real desire to do it again. And obviously, losing the fashion designers that we work with as well, that was a huge chunk out of our turnover as a business. So um, I'd gone round to my brother's house one evening in 2007. We were just having a beer in his garden, and I said, look, with all these designers that we've worked with, and you know, the design skills actually coming from us, they're not actually doing the designs. They're using our work. And... Obviously, we've lost that element of the business now. And I think from what I did from Geometric, I know what I did wrong. Um, so let's try and why don't we do our own brand? <clears throat> and obviously, sort of family is hugely important to us. That's why we simply just called it Tyler and Tyler. So it's just it's literally just our surname, obviously. Um, and that's how the brand started. But we we spent a good 12 months. So we didn't actually officially launch until 2008, but we spent 2007 designing the collection, um, doing all the packaging, getting everything right. And at the time, you know, we had it was great. We had, a you know, quite a large circle of friends between the two of us that we could bounce ideas off. So we, the whole time we were speaking to people and speaking to, our, you know, a lot of our friends were sort of our target audience as well at the time. So it was great to get their, to get their feedback and it it just allowed us to really home it and, and get things right so when we did actually launch um 
you know, we did we did one trade show at Earl's Court in London, and off the back of that, we picked up you know two two very large uh, UK retailers. Um, so it was a, you know an amazing start for us, and I kind of knew then that we you know well we I've got it right this time, and I think it was with the power of having my brother as well, definitely um, having sort of him with it as well. Um, I we're both creative, so some of the collections we design individually. Some of them we designed together, um, but how it actually works is, I mean, if you, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see that, you know, I, I, I'm sort of probably more the face of the brand uh, more than anything. So I do all the, the reels and the talking about the range and um, my brother. Heavy, heavy lifting and the drumming. Sorry? The heavy lifting and the drumming. Yes, the drumming <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah, I love putting the odd drumming video on. <laughs> um, so, but my brother's sort of um so i'm sort of responsible for marketing the brand i guess you'd say and my brother is actually he's he's actually the production manager over all of the factory and my brother is just uh uh our dad's our father's actually he's a fully qualified engineer um and as i say jonathan and i both went down business back uh, business studies um route um for our degrees but jonathan's got a sort of not really real natural ability for engineering so he's fantastic at working things out when we when we come to develop a new product um i mean our our um the whale tail that we do on a, a couple of things called a t-bar and then there's one that's called a whale tail which most brands do but the the whale tails that you see out there a lot of them don't sit flush when you're putting them on um but my brother developed one that actually sits flat. So when you're actually pushing it through the shirt, it doesn't catch. So sort of having his, his expertise on that front from an engineering perspective, he's amazing at sort of working that kind of thing out. And, and I think, so yeah, it's kind of, we've both got strengths. I mean, I, I think I, I'm not too bad at engineering if I put my mind to it, but I'm not, my brother's got a real passion for engineering. Whereas I'm more sort of passionate about the creative and design side of things. So, you know, quite a lot of the designs come from me, as I say, but we both take a, do a lot of the design work together, but, um, but it's good that we both sort of recognize each other's strengths on that front, really. And all the engineering does actually happen in your factory in yeah, Birmingham. Absolutely. So, um, if you, so across the collection, all, all the metal items. So the, um, cufflinks, blazer buttons, lapel pins, collar stays, key rings, they're all manufactured by us in-house in Birmingham. Um, and I mean, it's amazing when, you know, whenever we, whenever I put photographs up of the factory or if we ever have people visit, um, people just think you press a button and out pops the cufflink at the other end. And it, it's not like that at all. Um, a cufflink has to go through about 15 different processes from, from beginning to end. And the majority of those are hand hand finishing as well, and um, so we do. You know, each cufflink's hand polished, each cufflink's individually hand enamelled. So, you know, our team that we've got here are, are really skilled. Um, we're very lucky, really, because it's a it's a family business, isn't it? And we've, I mean, we've seen it sort of. The team's decreased. Um, when I first started, we had just over fifty people on the team, and we're now down to I think we've got eleven now um and that's through people retiring and um because you know all my team now most of them have been here since they left school um 
and and you know they're, they're in the sort of mid 40s 50s and up above that as well um and the fact they've been with us for that long and you know the, the people that you know i've got a guy that's known me since you know a lot of them know me since i was 11 years old kind of thing so it's a family business and, and the whole teams we treat like family as well so it's a nice it's a nice environment um I mean, it's sad, really, because I mean, uh, we've got a big drive at the moment to sort of get get some young apprentices, really, because once these skills are lost, they'll be gone forever, and that's quite a frightening thing, really. Um, it's weird. I don't know what it's like where you are, but certainly in the UK now, I think uh, the youngsters that are coming through aren't particularly interested in, in manufacturing and working in a factory. And I think that's quite a, a sad thing. Um, so. Um, yeah, we really want to sort of get some apprentices so we can pass on the skills that we've got because obviously we don't want them to die. I mean, we've still got time still on our side. I'm, I'm not really panicking yet, but um, yeah, it would be nice to see younger people coming through. But I just think there's this sort of desire now for people to, you know, they want to sit in a nice office and what have you and have a nice salary and company car, etc. And uh, to actually learn like a real skill and craft, which is, you know, the amount of skill that does go into making a, a blazer button or cuffling, it's you know, it's it's that's a really good skill to have. And um I think there's there's certainly we've noticed a real turnaround in the last few years for people really there's a real desire there now for British manufactured goods. Um so I think you know that I think the fact that that's there, hopefully that will sort of turn young people on to sort of learning the skills that we do as well, hopefully. Now you mentioned British manufactured goods because is there is there a lot of this type of thing still made in the UK? Um, I mean Birmingham's quite there's there's Birmingham's always sort of been sounds weird but the badge cufflink making capital of the UK so still a couple of there's some of the two, there's two or three other companies that still manufacture in the UK and they're like us based in Birmingham um, so. Yes, yeah, yeah, Birmingham's really the hub for it, really, for, for manufacturing blazer buttons and cufflinks and things like that, and it has been for a long time. Because as I see it, there are quite a few companies that these days have sort of jumped on the made-in-the-UK bandwagon, or should you say the, the UK bandwagon? They, they yeah. give the impression <clears throat> that they are making in the UK without yeah, I necessarily think, I think being so... Absolutely, I think there's so many companies. I mean, certainly, there's there's a, a lot of my contemporaries and accessories. You know, they they are. I think they use the slant British designed, um, but it's not actually manufactured in the UK. So there's, there's certainly a lot of that going on. And I don't think I think in menswear in general, there's a lot of brands that sort of go very much along the British heritage line. And but the actual reality is that they might be designing it in the uk but it's not it's not made in the uk so that's something that obviously we're really proud of our manufacturing heritage and it's something that i really champion as well um i think one of the things that i i particularly struggle with really is that um i think certainly in the uk people have had it drilled into them that much that they need to pay a really high price for a British made good and it, it's a luxury and, a, and what have you. Um, and in, you know, some, some of the prices I see my contemporaries charging make my eyes water. Um, Cause obviously I'm manufacturing it on. It's, I know what's involved and, you know, we try and I, I try and be honest in, in what we do pricing wise on all our accessories. And 
And sometimes that that bizarrely leads to people saying, well, you can't be manufacturing it in the UK. So it's it's an absolute myth, really, that um, that UK-made product has to be expensive. Um, I mean, it's a great company um, called Community Clothing. I don't know if you've come across them. Yeah, Patrick. Um, yeah, Patrick. But what he's doing is fantastic. So, you know, he's getting... He's getting British-made factories when they're at their quietest points and he's getting them to make garments. Um, and they're really good quality and the prices, you know, fantastic prices. And so I'm very much of his mindset, really, that, you know, people should not be made to feel that they've got to pay excessive prices. And it's it's something that's just been done through marketing and hype, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I mean, for me, it's just, we, we you know, we we're all about sort of, we want people to buy better and buy less, definitely. And you know what we what we produce and the amount of hand finishing that goes into all our metal accessories is is phenomenal. And um, but we charge what I believe to be you know a realistic, reasonable price. Um, and it's just trying to turn people onto that fact, really. Um, but uh, I mean, you know, I, I listened to you, your interview with um, Gary Newbold at English Utopia, and he was very, you know what he said was fantastic. You know, he sources the best materials and he makes everything to the best of his ability. And then he charges what he believes is the, you know, uh, the price that you should pay for that quality. And we're exactly the same on, on that front, really, I think. I think a lot of the high prices do come through excessive markups because whenever I have some insight in what things actually cost to make, yeah, surprisingly reasonable. Mm, yeah absolutely so things can be sold at a fair price but not if you're charging a 16 yeah. time markup yeah, absolutely i mean where i think where we struggle as a brand being completely honest is to get that brand recognition and to, to get ourselves known as well um as you can imagine you know running a factory and having the overheads of of having a factory and all our team uh you know the insurance that we have to have in place for all the machinery um you know, it's 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 a very expensive thing to run, and and many of my contemporaries are just sitting in a you know a, a rented rented design office, and uh, they haven't got those overheads, so they've got the money then to to throw it at PR, fashion PR agencies, which which I haven't got, so it's very difficult to sort of get exposure. Um, you know, they, they've got they've got money to throw at getting coverage in the likes of GQ. And, and you know sort of the men's menswear publications and that gets them the exposure that they want and and unfortunately i think i don't know what it's certainly i think a lot of the fashion journalists in the uk are quite lazy well not lazy but a lot of them i think kind of whoever's spending money on advertising with them um are the ones that they give coverage to when they're doing a piece on you know what to wear this winter kind of thing so that's difficult for us. It's difficult to sort of get that exposure. And yet I, I kind of feel that we're a bit of a hidden gem in the fact that we do design and manufacture in-house. You know, we are a, a rarity really on that front. And um, people just need to discover us and find us, I think. It sounds like British heritage should be discovering you instead. But you described <laughs> the fashion journalists as lazy. I think you meant lazy and corrupt, maybe? <laughs> yeah, it's just, I mean, it's just, it's weird. And you also, and you know, you see a lot of um, journalists who like a certain brand and they want to wear that suit by that tailor on Savile Row. So they'll they'll give them coverage in, in return for a suit, you know, that kind of thing. A lot of that goes on as well. So, yeah. I'd, I'd do that, yeah. 
I'd definitely do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, it, it, it's it's frustrating in a sense to try and get out there really and, and get our name known. Um, and also, you know, when we first started the brand as well, we 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 started as purely as a wholesale model. Um, as I mentioned, we got in with um, we got in with two big UK retailers very early on, um, but both of them were very. Uh, very to the point that they they did not want us to sell direct to the public. So they said, you know, we don't want you launching your own online store. Um, you can supply other brick and mortar stores, that's fine, but you can't do your own on, online retail. So, you know, that was that was very early days as well when we started the brand. So it was sort of the, uh, around 2008, 2010, I think that all was. Um, so yeah, we started off as just supplying wholesale to start with, um, and it was so we've lost sort of traction in that sense because we had a lot a number of years where we weren't dealing directly with the public. So we were kind of late to the game with um, Instagram and things like that. So getting traction and exposure for the brands hard, um, uh, but yeah, it was it was difficult. I mean, at the time because we just launched the brand. We were completely fine with them saying we couldn't sell direct to the public because it was just such a big deal for us to get into these stores. Um, but sadly, I, I, you, I don't know what retail is like where you are, but certainly in the UK, I think the high street retail is sort of dying. It's becoming difficult. Um, and certainly we found now that UK retailers have just become increasingly impossible to work with, the larger ones anyway, Um I mean, we, why, we had, why is that? I think it's just. I mean, we we had a the one large retailer that we were with. Um, they wanted to make sort of um, the, the margins that they wanted were, were, were crazy, and I was I was never actually able to give them the margins that they wanted. But you know, they were effectively making virtually double of the margin that most other brick and mortar stores were in the UK, and. And they had a great reputation, but I, th- I think obviously the general public don't realise that it's actually the suppliers at the end of it that are actually getting battered. So, yeah, they 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 sort of wanted to make quite large margins, and then they also had a, a rebate scheme, which is effectively where you when you be sort of when your products become successful, you, you then have to start paying for the privilege of being in the store. Um, so it, it becomes it becomes really hard to work with because they're sort of constantly taking from you on that front. Um, and, you know, we had a, one of the retailers, we had a, had a sort of very difficult meeting with, and um, they, they sort of said, Oh, you know, the, the brands we've grown you again this season, the brand's done really well. And um, the trouble is because you increased your prices at the beginning of the season, that's reduced our margin. And, and we were talking, we just increased our prices by a few pence and it was purely because our raw material, the metal prices had gone up in the UK. Um, so at this point, they produced a commodity chart, chart for me and, and said, you know, we've got a commodity department now. So we know that the price of metal has been coming down on a worldwide scale for the last six months. So why have you not reduced your prices? So which was completely bizarre line for them to take from from my point of view because obviously I don't buy in the commodity market we, we buy our metal at the best price we can from our supplier on the day that we need the metal so the commodity market was kind of irrelevant um and then I said to them well you know there's a lot of different types of metals what 
are you talking about a specific type of metal? And I just said, well, it's metal, Richard, metal. And I said, well, <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you know what we manufacture our cufflinks out of? And they said, well, metal. And I said, well, yeah, metal, but it's a, it's a specific type of metal. And they basically said, well, you tell us what type of metal it is, and then we'll go and get the commodity charts on that. So it was very much kind of a, a kind of crazy conversation, really. Um, but, yeah, that, that meeting literally ended with them saying, well, if you don't bring down your prices, that's the end of our relationship. Um, and I, we weren't in a position to do that at all. Um, so that was that was kind of – they stuck to their word, and that was the – the end of the relationship and unfortunately it was done it was done halfway through a season with us as well and with this particular retail you had to have sort of you had to have all the seasons predicted their forecast stock you had to have, a, have that on the shelf um so it left us with a lot of stock um fortunately we had the support of our the rest of the business outside tyler and tyler which allowed us to survive it and get through but you know i knew i knew of a couple of other brands that had similar meetings at the same time as us by the same retailer and, and they sadly went they didn't survive and went under so it's frightening the power that they've got really um and there's also stores that operate on a sale or return basis which is, again is, is very much at the risk of the supplier so yeah they've kind of become very hard to work with um and obviously once we'd freed ourselves up from that relationship from that particular retailer we, we launched our own own online store and, and and now deal directly with the public, which I absolutely love. It's 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 nicer for us as a brand to do that because I've now got the interaction with our actual customers, which is nice, and we get feedback and get design input from our customers as well, which is invaluable. And if you supply, if you do working on a wholesale model and supply and retail, obviously you don't get that feedback. All you see is the buyer in the buying office. So it's nice to have that direct contact with the public now and I really enjoy that element of it and I think um it's it's helped the brand come on leaps and bands bands in that sense that we've actually got that direct input and contact with customers now I suppose it also allows you to do uh, sort of cool little more sort of hobby projects like you've been doing recently with your uh, Negroni yeah. Cufflinks yeah so we did the um the Negroni Cufflinks has, has been great um I mean, as, as you know yourself, it, it, Negroni has been kind of adopted as the drink of menswear. Um, some people hate it. I, yes. pers- <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I personally love it as a drink. And um, and certainly when we go to Pitti, um, uh, Pitti Umo, which is, you know, is the, the main sort of menswear show in Florence twice a year, that's sort of the, the go-to drink that everybody drinks and, and, and all the events in the evening, everybody's drinking Negroni. So, yeah, it's become kind of a... I think huge trend for it, pity, and then that's just spilled out into lots of menswear enthusiasts have sort of adopted it as a drink as well. So, yeah, it's the first time we did a um, we did a pre-order. So, I've got a very very busy mind, unfortunately, and I think the the Grony design came to me at about four o'clock in the morning. Um, so. <laughs> switched on the light my wife was like oh what's he doing now um just quickly went downstairs did the sketch couldn't get back to sleep because my mind was just then too busy on it and then um so yeah we we did this final design work on it and then we produced um pre-production samples and then we did a we thought we'd try doing a pre-order on it basically so we've and again that's part of our effort as well to be sustainable manufacturers um so we did a limited production run on it 
So we gave people a window to do the pre-order and then they've um, given us sort of six weeks, we said. So we've manufactured them in six weeks and they should be landing on everybody's doorstep now. But yeah, it just really, especially on Instagram, it sort of struck a chord, I think. Um, yeah, I was amazed when, when the orders were going out the other day. The, the, we'd had orders from Brazil, Chile, Austria, Germany, literally America, just all over the world. So it was... And I think that's probably the first success I've ever had on on Instagram for a campaign as well. So to actually get direct sales from Instagram without having to spend on advertising was was quite a phenomenal thing, really. I was quite taken back by it. But um, and again, we've got I've got some good friends in the industry as well that I sent a pair of the pre-production samples for, so they kindly uh, took a few shots of themselves wearing them, which helped to raise a bit of awareness as well. But yeah, I think we're going to. We're certainly doing the batch productions will carry on because it certainly worked for us well, and there's there's quite a few of the Negroni ideas in the pipeline, shall we say? <laughs> can I request a, a mug of tea? <laughs> tea time one, yeah, I can do that. Perhaps we'll do a Horlicks and hot chocolate one as well. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, does this mean that at next uh, pity uh, everyone will be sporting their Negroni cufflinks? I hope so. That'd be nice. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, hopefully, I've, I've, hopefully, we'll see a few pictures of people wearing them popping up on Instagram now. Now people are getting the deliveries of them. So, um, but yeah, it's been nice. We had a really good reaction to it, and it was quite a nervous, nervy thing because it was the first time we've ever sort of done a sort of pre pre order thing. So, um, so it worked well, and as I say, it helps us with being sustainable as well. I mean, it's it's weird. Sustainability has become such a a trend now, and, and everybody's sort of doing it. Some people are. Some retailers are sort of not really doing it wholly, really, I don't think, as you know yourself. Um, I think the definition of sustainability is very widely it's, misunderstood. It's, or yeah. it's, it's become very muddy, hasn't it, shall we say? So, mm. But as a, as a manufacturer, you know, if you're going to su- apply sustainability to us, it's something that we've been doing since 1908. You know, it's it's... That's just how we operate. So when we when we produce a blazer button or a cufflink, we clip the metal to be the optimum size to do the stamping from. And then once it's clipped and stamped, that waste metal then gets sold back to our metal supplier. And then that's then turned back into metal strip, which we buy back in. So it comes full circle with us, really. So there's minimal wastage with what we do. And... Being manufacturers as well, that's always allowed us to be with Tyre and Tyler. It's always meant that we, we've never we've never carried excessive stock either. Um, you know, we, we can't we, we're constantly reviewing the the analytics of the website and what's selling. So we always know right. We need to manufacture some more stock. So we've always got stuff coming through the factory, but there's certainly not excessive amounts of stock sitting there on the shelf, which a lot of fashion brands do have that excessive stock, which again isn't. That's not a sustainable way of, of carrying on either. And and as I say earlier, you know, we, we strongly believe in buy better, buy less. And the finishing that we do on all our on all our accessories, whether it be our wallets or cufflinks, it's all of the highest quality. You know, we want we want that that pair of cufflinks or that blazer button to be in a guy's wardrobe for for the rest of his life, hopefully, you know. So and and we keep our designs classic as well. We try and be as timeless as we can. It's very weird. It's it's a difficult one with the accessories, really, because you know I, I always get people sort of saying to me, "Well, what's your target audience?" and 
and I have to be honest, there, is, there isn't particularly one because I know from sort of speaking to customers, they range from, you know, 18-year-old guys to guys in their late 70s. You know, it goes across all all ages, really, accessories does. Um, so I haven't actually got categorically, I can't actually say, yes, this is my, this is a stereotypical Tyler and Tyler customer because they're really varied. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of our designs you've seen are, are sort of based around sort of, iconic British imagery. So we've got our rutting stag design, our sparring hairs and our Labrador, which we launched in the range very early on. Um, and they still sell well today. That's another thing with us as well. We're not like, although we bring out new collections, we're constantly moving and we're constantly bringing out new collections every season, but we're not like a clothing brand. We're not a seasonal. It's not, accessories aren't seasonal really. And we work on the simple ethos that if something stops selling, that's when we discontinue it from the range. So, you know, one of our first cufflink designs um, that we did back in 2008 is, is still one of our top selling cufflinks now. So, you know, we don't, why change it? You know, it's the, the record's not broken, so to speak. So, and I, and I think as well, our loyal customers recognize that in us. So, you know, they, 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 they kind of buy off us in confidence that, you know, it's, that, that's, that, that's on the website because it does well. It's a popular design. Margaret Thatcher Memorial Cufflinks are no longer with us. <laughs> not not guilty of doing those. <laughs> <clears throat> now, you mentioned it's all the metal gear that's made in Birmingham. Yes, yeah. But you have a – I mean, looking at the range on your website, it's quite bafflingly immense. Um, but you make a lot of other stuff as well. Where do you have that made? So, I mean, we're very open – um, about where we get everything made. If you if you look on our website about the story of the brand, so um, some of our stuff's made in Italy. I mean, in essence, everything's designed in house by, so it's all British design. I, I mean, in an, in, a, in an ideal world, I would absolutely love to be able to work with with British manufacturers on everything that we do um, in the range. I mean, as you've seen, we do ties, we do socks, we do belts, pocket squares. But unfortunately. Um, it, it just the, the, the cost of actually getting because obviously I you know I still need to as a business I've still got to make a, a profit on whatever product that we do and and obviously British manufacturers have got their price points and then by the time I've put the margin on that I need to make um, in some cases it can be cost prohibitive I, I mean I would love to have have got all of our leather uh, made in the UK but the manufacturers that I spoke to. And I'd say that they they wanted excessive prices as well. Again, they were towing the line of this. It's British made, so it needs to be expensive. So that was that's been frustrating for us, really. So um, our leather's made in India, um, and the factory that we work with are phenomenal. The quality that they do is unreal, and we worked very closely with them. You know, we didn't just want to take a, a leather off the shelf either. So. Uh, our hides are, are sort of tanned and produced for us exclusively. So they, they only use those hides for Tyler and Tyler. And we went through a lot of sampling on that to make sure it was a durable leather. I mean, our leather's just, you know, I've got a I've got a wash bag now that I've probably had for a good 10 years and it still stands up well. The ageing that the leather's had has just added real character to it. Um, and as well, if you look at our wallets, um, a lot of them have got... Um, hand enamelled metal badge on so we make that part in Birmingham and that's we, we fixed that to the wallet so that's sort of kept the 
UK manufactured element on the wallets as well. Um, so yeah, we, we, as I say, we'd love to have everything made in the UK. Our socks are made in the UK. Again, we've got a great manufacturer that we work with closely supplying our socks. Um, so that's, that's fantastic for us. But um, sometimes it's just sadly cost prohibitive when, when UK manufacturers are demanding high prices. Um, it's, a, it's a strange one. Um, I, don't, I don't, don't quite know how to, to... I don't think that will change, unfortunately. Um, so I don't know. If, if There might be a change in UK manufacturers' attitude. I, I don't know, but I'm sort not of, sure. sort of think that... It, it's a question of getting debt back to the source of it because it strikes me that there are apparently a lot of sock manufacturers in the UK yeah, yeah. as well as knitwear because you can still get a Scottish made knitwear yeah, sweater for hundred yeah. pounds, which seems incredibly reasonable. Yeah. 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 Socks as well. Um, so maybe, um, yeah, maybe it's a case of getting, finding the source of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, 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 this is it. There's not many actual leather manufacturers left in, 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 in the UK now. And we're, you know, we're not far from Walsall, which was, you know, Walsall was the hub of leather making, um, in back in the day. Uh, it was where all the leather was manufactured in the UK. Um, unfortunately, a lot of those leather factories still stand, but are now apartments and restaurants now. <laughs> uh-huh. So, yeah, it's sad for us, really, to be so close to what was the, you know, I mean, Birmingham's always been the hub for, for badge manufacturing and and, le- and leather was always Walsall. So to not be able to find a, a leather maker that we could work with in the UK, it's, it's sad. I mean, we we're always on the hunt, that's for sure, because I, I would love to be able to say that everything's produced in the UK. That that would be my ultimate dream, really. I can hook you up with some guys who do goat leather. Oh, that'd be good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just imagine the wash bags, so soft and supple. <laughs> yeah. Is that is that Bill, Billy Tannery, is it? Yeah. Billy Tannery, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Yeah, I mean, what they're doing as well, that's, you know, great idea as well, you know, to be using that that leather. Uh, fantastic and they're doing some nice products as well um they collaborated recently with a friend of mine laird hatters and they did some really nice caps with with leather peaks on so yeah it's um yeah i, I shall have a chat with them <laughs> it's, it's back to the old sort of british uh, innovation where you have guys just thinking up stuff in their sheds and yeah. making it sometimes yeah. it's a world-leading product sometimes it's the sinclair c5 yeah absolutely absolutely yeah, it's um, yeah, they've they've come up with a, you know a leather that hide that not many people think to use. So fair play to them. It's a it's a great concept, and I you know wish them every success with what they're doing. Definitely. You mentioned uh, putting locally made badges on wash bags that were made in India, which then made them sort of legitimately made in the UK. No, we don't. We don't. We don't. We we we, we say that the badge is manufactured in Birmingham, but we okay. that, that we're very transparent about the fact that leather isn't um but people understand that um and are happy with it um yeah. again as i say we made sure we made sure that the quality of the leather was exceptionally good um and stands up quality wise to what our metal products are so and i think that's you know uh, the main thing that we we've made sure that everything is is on a par with the high standards that we have for what we manufacture in-house but legally speaking it often doesn't take much to be able to say something is made in the UK. No, you're absolutely right. You can literally just do, I mean, I'm sure some brands do, but you can, 
you can literally buy a product in and if you're doing sort of a couple of processes in-house and that can just be putting a, you know, tagging a card on, a, you know, some packaging on it or something like that, that that then has been, that's an operation that you've done in the UK. Um, so, yeah, the, the, unfortunately, there's, there is some people claim UK made for just carrying out a few finishing processes on something that's not actually made in the UK. Um, I'm sure that goes on a lot, but you, you completely correct in what you're saying. You, that can be done, absolutely. And, but it's something that we've always chosen not to do. Um, you know, if you read the brand story on our website, it says about it says about where you know where in the world we get stuff made outside of the metal accessories, because um, that's just our ethos. Really, is you know we want to be as honest as possible. Now, if you were heading back to Pity this autumn. What sort of accessories are the guys there really into? Um, it's, I mean, I think there's certainly um, people are sort of, as we said earlier, mixing and matching up a lot now. Um, so wearing a different jacket to their, you know, not they're not wearing the strict formal two-piece suit. Um, but certainly um, I think cufflinks are always make quite a big appearance with people at Pity. Uh, pocket squares do as well. And I think, you know, um, I think a lot of guys want to add sort of texture as well. So, mind you, the silk tie, traditional silk ties seems to be making a huge comeback at the moment, I think. Um, more vintage looking designs as well. But we've certainly had a, a period, you know, our wool ties do well, but that's because they... There's a nice texture to them, and I think they add another texture and another layer. And I think so. Yeah, I think I think texture and layering and getting a nice colour palette is is important, and, and accessories can help out a great deal with that. Um, I'm really, I mean, I we launched um, we launched lapel chains at the last pity, um, which is a very old accessory. Um, changed considerably now. I mean, a guy would have originally had it. Um, on the end of the chain would have been the pocket watch and it was it was mainly British military officers that wore them. So they'd have their military issue watch in their top pocket and then the chain would be linked into their, into a, it's a pin that goes in the lapel button hole basically. Um, whereas now it's just, it's an enamel charm on the end of what we've done. So, um, so you have a nice enamel pin in your lapel uh, button hole and then the chain goes down into your pocket behind the pocket square it's quite a it looks good without a pocket square it looks good either way but that's that's a that's something that we introduced and um some guys wear them and and but i'm really hoping that will be an accessory that sort of people will recognize as has been a, that bit different because you don't see many around um so i'm hoping we always find whenever we do pity that um sort of people don't often get it the first time round, and it can take you to do sort of two shows to get a new product picked up on. And then people sort of, I think, I think it's almost sort of, they think, Oh, well, it was here last season and it's the showing it again this season. So it must, it must, must've had some success for them to be, to carry on with it. And it, it has been picked. I mean, you know, they've done well for us in Japan because um, the Japanese are really into their accessories in a big way. So, um, so yeah, I just need the rest of the world as, as well as Japan to come to them. 
I think it's a case of no one wanting to be the first adopter in case it fails, because then they've sort of failed. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I often have a, a, a World War Two trench whistle in my pocket. Oh, fantastic! Or or hanging off my uh, jacket, uh, just an affectation. But can you imagine that on the end of a lapel pin for the truly obnoxious gentleman? When you're not Absolutely. getting service, you just <laughs> <laughs> that'd be really good. I mean, talking about whistles, my uh, so my grandfather worked for Hudson's Whistles, who are they produce the Acme Thunder whistle and all these various whistles, and they're in they're in Birmingham. They're still, they still around. Yeah, they're still manufacturing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my grandfather collaboration coming up there. Yeah, I still, I still, I'm still in touch with the family that that own it because uh, my grandfather worked there literally from second world war onwards he worked there all his life until he retired so he was kind of real part of the furniture there so to speak so it's nice that we've still got the link with the family that own it because uh yeah he's still you go in the factory and there's still pictures of him on the wall as you go up the stairs and what have you so it's uh it's nice yeah they're, they're still manufacturing in birmingham which is fantastic yeah absolutely so that's a good example of these sort of quirky old factories that you can't really imagine in 2021 that they're still around, but then it turns out they actually are because yeah, there's I mean, a tiny market somewhere for what they're making. This is it. I mean, you know, they every every football referee uses their whistles, you know, <laughs> and that has been the case for, since football began and have referees. So, uh, yeah, they've got a real history. But it's like a stay, you know, they've, they're, they're still using machinery that dates back to the, to the early 1900s, which is, is the same as us. I mean, we've got modern machinery as well. I mean, our, our big uh, metal press, which stamps most of our cufflinks, I mean, that, that operates on 100 tonnes of pressure, um, which is pretty phenomenal when you think about it. That's heavy uh, metal. Yeah. Uh, and then we've still got our hand hand presses, which, which date back to, you know, early 1900s, which still do an absolutely perfect job. Um yeah, it's, it's it's a fascinating industry. Uh, it's weird. I mean, there's, uh, unfortunately, they they've closed down now. But there was another uh, Birmingham badge manufacturer, um, and they still had drop stamp presses, um, which are now um, sort of highly uh, highly illegal. Um, if you've got basically, if you've got one, you can still use it. But um, so th- there's a well in the ground that the guy actually stands in and then you literally pull up a rope on a pulley and then that drops the, the stamp. Um, so, yeah, it's quite they're, – they're sort of the original heavy metal presses, basically, so you're purely operating off pulling a rope up and then the weight dropping down with the die, the force of it, and that stamp in the metal. Is, is um, that maybe one of those jobs where it's hard to get new apprentices in? As I say, if you've, if you've got one, you can still legally operate them. Um, but this, I think, this was the last factory I know of that that was still operating them. There's a museum in the in the Birmingham Jewelry Course that's still got them that you can see. But with health and safety now, um, I mean, as you can imagine, when you've got 100 tons of pressure coming down, um, you really don't want to get your hand involved in that kind of operation. So, yeah, all our machinery, the guards that come down on it, and, and everything, and, and all the health and safety that we have to use wouldn't allow for that kind of operation to go on now. But I mean, when you, when you see that being done, it's, it's fascinating, but I mean, I absolutely love, you know, our, our offices sit directly above the factory floor and I absolutely, one of my favorite sounds is in the morning when I'm sitting at my desk doing my emails and I can feel George operating the press machine and cause it, it makes the whole building <laughs> vibrate as you can imagine. It's just, a, it's one of those sounds that I've grown up with and it just, uh, 
can't sort of get enough of it really i never get bored of it do, and do it's just do you have a fondness for old, really old machinery? I just, I'm just thinking back to when I was in Sheffield and visited uh, Michael May, who makes knives, and we were in the forge where his uh, his pal makes the oh the folded steel, um, and uh, all, all this machinery was from about 1850. Yeah, yeah, but it was so solid, still working, it. just I'm, greased up and yeah, kept going. It. Absolutely, I mean, uh, yeah, all our original hand presses and clipping machines are just yeah they're just, they're just in unbelievable condition and the and the, and the patina that the paintwork's got on them now as well as you can imagine is amazing but yeah it just I've, I've sort of grown up with it and it's always fascinated me really and as i said earlier you know before um dad had the business we um you know i'd, I'd regularly go into firmings and sons which again has got very old machinery um and it's just yeah, it's something I've grown up with, and it, it it is fascinating, and I and I love the fact, like you're saying, there's so many small like British manufacturers still going today that are still using that kind of machinery, and um, yeah, I, I think it's just a nice thing to be able to do, and it, and I, and again, I think it's great that the machinery back then was built to last as long as this. I mean, you know, I know a lot of your you you know a lot of your followers sort of are into the clothes that they are because it was you know. British made, it was made and it's been made well, it's been made to last. And, you know, and I think it's, this is it with us. I mean, because we're still using all those same techniques and, and what have you that, that we were, that the company has always used, um, you know, we're still making to that level of quality. And I think it's getting people to recognize that as well, which is it's something that we strive to do. So, you know, I mean, you might buy a vintage piece of clothing because you know back then that that brand, whether it be Barber or whatever, would, would you know the quality then was the zip was good and the, the the way it was stitched together and put together was good. But we're still making cufflinks exactly the same way we were, so it's never our level of quality, uh, whether it be a cufflink or a blazer button or a lapel pin, hasn't changed. So yeah, we build stuff to last is all I can say, and and, and part of that story is is using the old machinery that's still does an amazing job um, to this day. Are there any accessories of the past that have sort of fallen by the wayside and are no longer used? Would that be, say, mm. a, a candle holder you had on your suit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I, I, I've not actually come across anything yet that I would say that on. Um, I mean, what the, as I said earlier, I, I always kind of feel that everything's a copy of a copy of a copy. And if you can find something, just do a different spin on it. And a good few years ago now, I, I um, saw quite, I suppose it would have been a brooch really, but I saw a, a, a brooch in an, in an antique shop. And um, and I just sort of thought it was, it was on the large size. I, I would imagine it was probably a lady's brooch. It probably would have been, I would imagine. But I just sort of thought, it'd be really nice to sort of do a lapel pin that was a bit more sort of statement piece and, and larger than, you know, I mean, normally our lapel pins are sort of usually round design and you don't normally go any more than sort of 18 mil round diameter. So I just sort of thought based on this brooch, it'd be really nice to do a range of larger lapel pins that you've got to have a bit of confidence about yourself to wear admittedly. Um, but we, um, 
we've got a fantastic archive here of, of, of books that, that the company's accumulated over the years that we're often looking for, for design inspiration. But we've got a really good one on, um, on heritage and coat of arms and crests. So I remembered this book and went back to it and had a look through it. And then we basically designed a range. We called it, we called the collection heraldic and um, we based them on coat of arms supporters. So we did a really nice, it was a dog, a griffin, a lion. So they were all based on really old British coat, family coats of arms. And um, we cast them because we do, as well as stamping, we do central fugal casting here as well. Um, so we cast them in in fine English pewter, and um, and yeah, they, they they've they've been really successful for us. And, and it is, as I say, it's guys that sort of got a bit of flair about them. I think wear them because they are they're quite noticeable and eye catching. They're, they're not huge, but they're bigger than your sort of standard lapel pin. So um, so yeah, it's, that was kind of a different spin and different direction for us to do um, with the lapel pin. And yeah, we did a show in New York with them. Um, when we launched them and um, there's a stylist at the show and he really picked up on them and then they had a sort of um, area at the show with models and, and mannequins as well and and he put most of he dressed most of the mannequins and the models with the lapel pin on so so it, it kind of worked for us and that's and again that's been we've done them that was a good few years ago now and they've they've continued to do well for us and and I've got and I you know I'd, I'd like to add to them really because there's, there's there's other sort of animals that I'd like to do on it. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's kind of trying to do different spins on things, but yeah, if I could ever find an accessory that's completely fallen by the wayside and being forgotten about, <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> oh, I should have mentioned trench whistles, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Personal whistles, not huge these days. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just, it's always just trying to, to come up with a different spin on something really and um and i think certainly future wise i mean we've got the we've already done um the design work for the next batch of, of negroni stuff that we're going to do um so so that's that's and doing the pre-orders really work for us as well and as i said that's helping us be sustainable and you know we've done some we've done some, some collaborations recently as well which have been really nice to do for us. Um, so I don't know if you saw that we did a, um, we worked with Matt at, at William Brown magazine and um, we did a collab and, and did a, a lapel pin for him, um, which which has done really well. Um, um, you know, and that again, that's been lovely for us to see. Um, there's guys all over the world posting pictures of them wearing their, whether it be their barber jacket or their suit jacket with the lapel pin on. So it's uh it's been really nice to have have that, you know, that collaboration, and, and that all just started as well. Um, Matt posted a picture of a, a vintage Bellstaff jacket um, that he got and that he bought in the UK, and it was covered in um, enamel badges. And um, I just I, I recognised a lot of the badges on there have been produced by us in the past, right. so. I just messaged Matt and said, oh, some of those badges that you've got on that jacket were manufactured by us in the 60s. Um, so then we started a conversation. I, I, I know Matt from, you know, Pity as well. Um, so I'd already got that sort of dialogue with him. So, yeah, we had a good chat. And then he said, look, it'd be great to do a collaboration and do a lapel pin. Um, 
so yeah, we did we did the lapel pin. It was really nice as well. And if you look on the Instagram feed as well, we there's 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 a short film that we put on of us manufacturing um, the, the the badge from start to finish. So you can see cutting the die, the the stamping being done, the hand enamelling being done, the hand polishing. So you know we we did the whole story on it, which um, I think appealed as, as well to a lot of Matt's followers and readers. So yeah, I think. Doing collaborations like that's been amazing for us, and, he, and obviously, you know, Matt's got a huge following, and, and the magazine's got a good readership as well. So, it's been nice to sort of get our brand known to known to guys that probably hadn't discovered us before. Um, so, yeah, it's been nice. I mean, certainly at the moment as well. Um, you know, I'd, I'd say at the moment for us, uh, blazer buttons. There's a real trend for blazer buttons now. Um, I mean, I've always loved blazer buttons. I've got a double-breasted blazer um, that was actually my grandfather's, um, and I've got Tyre and Tyler blazer buttons on that. And uh, I just love putting it on. I feel that it's like a bit of a suit of armour when I put that on. Um, but yeah, it's certainly in America. Um, we're getting a lot of, of, of orders from America now, um, and we've recently started doing um, personalised blazer button sets as well. Um, we launched those a couple of weeks ago. Um, and uh, you know we get the orders are coming in on that, and we're not you know <clears throat> there's a few there's a few of the companies out there that do personalisation on on it on metal accessories, but um, it's just literally a what I would call a scratch surface engrave, um, which won't last forever. Um, but we've done a really nice deep traditional deep cut engrave on our blazer buttons, so you can basically order a set of blazer buttons in gold or a silver finish, and we can engrave them with up to three initials on and, and we offer two different fonts on it. So, yeah, I think for us as well, you know, um, we've got some cufflinks coming out shortly as well to complement that. So, um, yeah, the personalisation side of things, I think, is is something else that for the future that we're sort of concentrating on. Um, I think, you know, I think guys just genuinely like, you know, being able to have their initials on something makes it that little bit more more special, I guess. So, so that's that's something that we're sort of focusing on. And as I said it very early on in the conversation, I think the future as well for the companies that we, we really want to get younger blood into the into the factory and and get get them sort of understanding and trained up in in, in all the skills that that we do um, that we we employ here to manufacture what we do. And I think that's obviously key to the success of the and the continued life of the business. Um, so that's that's something that we we definitely need to address and and yeah we will just keep on coming up with new designs and, <laughs> and and enjoy what we do. I think badges definitely have a, a bigger future than many think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think as well. I mean, certainly, I think the palpins are are, are, are becoming an increasingly more popular accessory for us. You know, not every I, you know, I completely understand. Not every guy wants to wear a double cuff shirt, um, so, and obviously, then you don't have a need for um, for cufflinks. And you know, I, I myself, you know, to work most days, I, you know, I, I wear an overshirt or a utility jacket. You know, when I'm actually in the factory, I'm, I'm not walking around in a in a blazer and a suit. Oh, day. come on, you wear your blazer. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, uh, so. You know, lapel pins quite a, a becoming a popular accessory. You know, as I say, when, when we've seen people posting the William Brown ones, they've had them on 
They've had them on jackets, they've had them on overshirts, they've had them on wax jackets, on the collar. Um, so, yeah, I think, I mean, there's certainly plans with the Negroni um, accessories to do lapel pin. Because mm. uh, I think I think that will probably appeal to more guys than, than the Cufflinks did. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Cufflinks is what we started with as a brand before we branched out into all the other accessories. It started as Cufflinks and... And that's the core of it, really. So, and, it, and so that's very dear to me, Cufflinks. And as I say, it is a, it's a trend that will always come and go. It always has peaks and troughs, but it's always, it's always constantly there. It just goes through periods where, where it's more popular than not. But it also requires you to have a shirt that actually has cuffs. Yeah, exactly. So when a guy's, a lot of guys just are more comfortable wearing a single cuff, which will just have a, a, a button on it. Um, so yeah, if you're not wearing a French double cuff. You don't need a cuffling then, obviously. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I, I mean, in the winter myself, you know, um, I'll often wear now, you know, a roll neck under a tweed jacket. Uh, so, again, you don't need cufflinks at that point. But with that, I'll accessorise it with a pocket square and a lapel pin or a lapel chain. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to think. I think I have more cufflinks then I actually have shirts with cuffs and I think I yeah. only have two pairs of cufflinks. So <laughs> I mean, one, one thing that we are, we're sort of thinking about doing eventually um, and it's just working out the logistics of it all. But because I think there's that many guys that have, um, that have got sort of cufflinks that they don't use it's sitting in the drawer. Um, so we, we're kind of thinking of doing a bit of a sort of cufflink amnesty where you can send back your cufflinks to us um in re- in return for a you know probably a discount on our web store um and obviously because that metal we can we can we can get recycled and made into a metal strip that we can use so we might do something like that I'd, I'd, li- I'd like to do it it's just coming up with the logistics and working out how to do it all but it's certainly feasible that sounds like a, a recipe for a truly horrible box full of ugly couplings yeah, <laughs> yeah. But this is it, though. I mean, I think there's that many guys that, as I say, have got sort of have been bought a horrible pair of novelty cufflinks mm. with with the Mister Men on or something like that. And they're just sitting there, and that metal can be recycled into, you know, it's the, the enamel can be stripped out of it, and it can be recycled into usable, reusable strip that we can manufacture accessories out of. So. Yeah, we might. I'd like, I'd like to do something like that, but it's yeah, it's working out the logistics. <laughs> you mentioned Mister Men. I mean, that would be an ideal collaboration. I'd have a lapel pin with Mister Noisy on it. Oh, don't get me wrong. I love the Mister. I love them. <laughs> and my daughter especially loves them at the moment. She's obsessed with them. Um, but yeah, I mean stuff like that though. It's um, it's often involves licensing, and it's an expensive business when you get into doing characters like that um, with licensing. So. Yeah, I mean, we've done, we've made, you know, we make, we've made stuff for people that hold licenses in the past, private label stuff. But yeah, we tire and tire. We we just stick to doing our our own our own design work. Tintin, Wallace and Gromit, oh, it's endless. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I absolutely love Tintin. Um, yeah, great. The, the illustrations are just fantastic, and I've seen some great. I think you probably follow Tintin Fellow, but you know I love his his Instagram feeds great, and he's got some brilliant lapel pins. But yeah, it's all it's all uh, licensing and what have you. Which is, I was can in be the, I was in the Tintin shop in London a few years ago, but I thought the, the sort of merchandise they had 
in that sort of end of the market, it's really crummy. Yeah. There's I was not expecting the, some really nice stuff. but uh, Yeah, I went into the – have you been in the Tintin? There's a store in Bruges that does a lot of Tintin stuff. And, mm. again, they, I bought a few things from there, a couple of sort of models. And um, the overall, it was pretty pretty crummy what they've got. Mm. <laughs> it's a shame, but it's because it's such a sort of iconic – character isn't it and the illustrations and everything just brilliant and and obviously i i, I like the, the sort of uh the style elements of it shall we say the sartorial elements and the, the, the clothes that he wears and everything it's uh yeah it's cool okay richard is there anything you'd like to sort of mention in closing no it's been you know thank you for taking the time to speak to me it's been a, a really interesting chat and uh i've really enjoyed it thank you thank you okay then thanks for now bye-bye Bye-bye. And that was all for this episode of Garmology. Thank you to Richard Tyler of Tyler & Tyler for being a great guest. You can find uh, their website at tylerandtyler.com and also as Tyler & Tyler Beham on Instagram. I've put some links in the show notes. Next week look forward to Sam Goats of Woven in the Bone visiting and uh, if you'd like more there's another 57 previous episodes to catch up on and uh, you might be interested in the blog at welldresseddad.com or follow me on Instagram as welldresseddad thanks for now and uh, see you soon bye bye